Don't ask. What is the drawing of Mr. Magoo? No, it's George. Uh, <laughs> it is. Are you enjoying yourself? Sorry. You see? You see? Listen, when is your next drawing class? Tomorrow. All right, I want you to do me a favor. What? I want you to find out if she likes me. Find out if she likes you? What are you, in high school? George, come on. Can't you just, like, talk to her yourself? But then she's going to know that I like her more than she likes me. But I don't want to be a secondary character. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Ivan. Welcome to our second last ever episode of But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. This is a podcast about Seinfeld, the greatest show of all time. And uh, we do something a bit different to the other podcasts about the show. We talk about the secondary characters in each episode of Seinfeld in random order. And this week, like I said, Steve, it's our second last ever episode of the series. And uh, we're going to do our final season six episode today, The Doodle. Yeah, an episode that I haven't seen in a long time. And yeah, a a forgotten classic for me personally. Lots of great scenes, love Newman, love Kramer, love George, loved it all. I really, really liked this episode a lot. Yeah, it was a fun one. And uh, we're not, it's not just us talking about the secondary characters from that episode today, Steve. We have a very special guest all the way from Phoenix, Arizona, a beautiful city. I went there about three years ago and I loved it, <laughs> exploring the uh, the Southwest of the United States. We have uh, Seinfeld, well, an author of an upcoming Seinfeld collection of essays or essays about the show. Not that there is anything wrong with that. Mitch Wolf, how you doing, Mitch? Good. How are you guys doing? All right, thanks. All right. It's a lovely afternoon in Phoenix for you. Yeah, it's Saturday night. It's about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, like it is every day this time of year. So things are good in Phoenix right now for me. Fantastic. Yeah, when I was in Phoenix, I, we went um, around the same time or a bit earlier. And yeah, it was it was fantastic. I think the worst it got to was about, I think, maybe like 80 something. Maybe, yeah, maybe 90. Yeah. And um, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, you have pretty bad summers, don't you? Pretty uh, yeah. like 100 degrees, 100, 100 yeah. degrees plus. Yeah, June, July and August get pretty tough. But if you, uh, can, get yeah. through, if you can get through August, then September through May is gorgeous. Yeah, oh, beautiful. Very good. Well, thanks so much for uh, for being with us because uh, you're, you're also talking about the secondary characters from the episode today so we can uh, we can get your takes and um, yeah. tell us before we do get into the episode tell us about your your upcoming collection of essays okay this is my first book I've ever uh, released it's called not that there's anything wrong with that 10 essays of varying importance and to be honest it was kind of born through the pandemic I'm a high school librarian and all of a sudden you know last March the world stopped and we've been in isolation essentially for a year and got to about December and vaccines were starting to get rolling and the light at the end of the tunnel was kind of there. And I kind of looked and thought, I got nothing to show for this pandemic. I mean, what, how often does this happen where you don't, you know, you don't go to work for a year, you're working from home, you're, you can't take any trips, your, your day-to-day life is kind of shut down. I'm almost through this and I have nothing really to show for it. I'm not very handy, right? I'm not a manly man. You know, somebody else might build a beautiful table or some rocking chairs or, you know, something they can look back on and think, oh, I built that during the pandemic. But I, I didn't, can't do any of those things. So I thought, mm-hmm. well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to, you know, write an essay about something I 
know a lot about or something I think I know a lot about and put it on Medium or something along those lines, you know? So I wrote one essay and then that turned into two essays. And then about three weeks later, I had 10 of them done. And I thought, I think this is a book. I don't know what to do with this. So I emailed my old college professor, Dr. Donald Elder from Eastern New Mexico University. I said, Doc, I think I wrote a book. He had wrote a, a couple books while I was at school there. I said, hey, I think I wrote a book. I don't know. This might suck. Can you read this and tell me if this is any good? Should I publish it? How do I go about publishing it? I don't I don't know any of this process. And he said, sure, let me take a look. And he read it. And he was like, yeah, I like this. This is great. I think you should publish this. So he gave me a couple of, you know, a couple of breadcrumbs on how you go about publishing a book. So I kind of followed those breadcrumbs and I ended up calling a local publishing house in Phoenix. There's a real like kind of artsy district downtown called Roosevelt Row. And uh, Lawn Gnome Publishing is the name of the place. And I called him up. He just cold called and said, hey, I wrote a book. You want to publish it for me? And he kind of chuckled and was like, well, what's your book about? It's a collection of essays about Seinfeld. Uh-huh. And he said, yeah, I'll send it over. So I sent it over and a couple days later, he got back to me and said, yeah, I'll publish this. So well, all right, here we go. So you know, I'm not a uh, author, you know, but as a career, it was kind of a, a thing from the pandemic. I had some fun with it. And now I think I have something real here. I have a real product to share with the world. Well, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, because obviously in that time, uh, you know, all around the world, you had all that time to, to do some stuff. And uh, yeah, you, you made the most of it and, and stuck with, uh, you know, writing about uh, a show that you really love. It's awesome. Right. You know, uh, I think... Shakespeare wrote something super important during a pandemic. King Lear, maybe during the plague. You know, this is this is not going to live on <laughs> for, for years in the posterity. But I watched a lot of Seinfeld. I think I have a few things that I could add to the Seinfeld pop culture. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there and see where it goes. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure uh, I'm sure it's gonna do pretty well, especially in the in the Seinfeld community. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, for sure. Well, some of the essays you've written. I mean, you've you've done a power ranking of um, the top well, 100 secondary characters to appear more than once on the show. And uh, you put Frank Costanza at number one. So a uh, pretty good choice. Boy, and I t- spent a longer than I should have, I feel like, on that. Who was going to get the number one spot? I love David Putty. I wanted it to be Putty. Mm-hmm. Putty, he finishes in that top five, you know. But when it came down to it, Frank invented a holiday, which I still think, you know, should take precedence over Christmas or Boxing Day or anything else at that end of the year. Yeah. Festivus is where we should all be spending our time. And I when I was on a walk, uh, last December in my neighborhood, I saw somebody, he had a big aluminum pole in his front yard and it said, he had a sign that said, a festivist for the rest of us. <laughs> so thir- 30 years later, you know, in Phoenix, Arizona, there's still people out there celebrating it. Yeah. Uh, and, and just his pure anger and his screaming at everybody. The time Steinbrenner comes to his house, tells him George is dead and he tells him, what the hell did you trade Jay Buhner for? Mm-hmm. Oh, it kills me every time. Yeah, it's sad. so sad we lost Jerry Stiller last year. Yeah, what a lot. I, I know. Yeah, he's tremendous. Also great in King of Queens. Oh, yeah, King of Queens. Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, one of his other major roles as well. Yeah, yeah just tremendous. Nice one. But yeah, anyway, you got a whole bunch of essays there about lots of different uh, fan topics about Seinfeld. Uh, I loved oh, one, one of the other ones that I liked as well a, a lot from you was um, Kramer's theory about where he got his money from. Uh, some really uh, good yeah. Especially the one, that, the one that stood out for me the most was the Dr. Van Nostrand is actually Kramer's past life. So he's, he huh? was actually born Dr. Van Nostrand, <laughs> but after an accident where he was, I think an air conditioner fell on him, he uh, lost right. his memory. And uh, he went by Kramer, the alias. So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's so I'm glad you like. I'm glad you like that. That was kind of my favorite essay to write. Um, yeah. So there's there's three competing theories. I won't give you everything. But no, no, no. Yes, one is Dr. Van Nostrand is real, and I tried to take something that happened in the show and then kind of run with it to make its own little 
you know, storyline. So the, there is a part in the show where he talks about when he was living in Greenwich Village and uh, an air conditioner falls out and hits him on the head. Yeah. So I stole that part and then we ran with Dr. Van Nostrand. Uh, there's another one when, you know, the famous portrait of Kramer is painted and he's having dinner with the old people that buy it and he, he leads in with a story about he hopped a steamship to Sweden and it was a big one. So then there's, an, you know, another theory is what happened to 17-year-old Kramer who hops this steamship to Sweden Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in the late 60s, what's going on in Sweden at the time, he encounters Jimi Hendrix in Germany, who's actually in Germany at that time. So that could have happened. And then another one, you know, something illegal with, or maybe mildly illegal with Bob Sacramento, maybe a ticket scalping situation is going on there. So that one was fun for me to write. Yeah. Uh, but I, I tried to take a, an essay for each of the main characters, except for Jerry, because there's enough content on Jerry. You know, Jerry's rewritten his own book. There's enough. I don't need to get into that. But I think we need to dive in a little bit deeper on George. Uh, one is uh, called Costanza, uh, a day late and a dollar short. And George is just so close to having a great life all throughout the series. Mm. But, you know, there's a few instances here or there. And I, I focus on three within like a six month time period with uh, the Yankees. You know, if he could have really gotten Bonds and Griffey in the same outfield, you know, what does the rest of his life look like? You know, he's a he's a general manager of Major League Baseball if he can pull that off. If, yeah, he, can, sure. if he can marry Marissa Tomei, how great would that be for him? You know, so I kind of run on that a little bit. And then I actually brought my sister in to write an essay on Elaine about her particular brand of feminism, which I think is an excellent essay basically about how Elaine hates men, uh, but she's a man's woman, you know, she doesn't have any friends that are girls. No, Uh, no. And really what feminism is to her is not so much about bringing women up. It's about taking men down, which which (laughs) I think is brilliant. Ah, wonderful. Well, you've come to the right (laughs) place because today we're going to talk about the the secondary characters from the Doodle, especially the the one-off characters. And uh, we can can go into a deep dive about all that. So that'll be exciting. I love it. Love (laughs) it. Yeah. This kind of feels like kismet in a way because uh, when we were thinking of what we should do with this podcast about four years ago, uh, you know, there were so many other podcasts that just did an episode by episode analysis and we thought, well, if we do that, we're not really contributing anything new. Kind of want to add to the pantheon of material out there, fan, fan material and official material. And we came up with the idea of elaborating on the secondary character storylines and, and figuring out who they are beyond what you see in the episode. And uh, now you've come along, Mitch, and you've done something really similar. So it's good to know that we aren't in our own little world cooking this stuff up in our brains, you know, that there's other people out there who like the idea of elaborating on, you know, established material and kind of making it up. That's how I felt when I came across your podcast. I thought, okay, these guys were right in the same vein as me. You know, I spent 6,000 words on secondary characters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we have our own rankings for our top 20 secondary characters we've done across the entire show, like whether they've appeared once or a hundred times. So yeah. right. it's very, very similar to you. Uh, now, Mitch, before we get on with our episode, normally I'm always interested to know in your well, people's history of Seinfeld, you know, how they got into it, what sort of defining moments in the show um, stand out. So do you mind just giving us a, a bit of a potted uh, history of your own um, experience with the show, you know, how you got started and, and all the rest? Yeah, for sure. So Seinfeld debuted, I think, 10 days after I was born. So I was born in June of 1989, and Seinfeld came out, I think, that first week of July in 1989. So my parents were Seinfeld people. Back when you had to, Thursday night at 9 o'clock on NBC, you had to sit down and, like, watch it, you know, <laughs> which is so foreign now. Like, I can pull up anything across the world at any moment from any streaming device. So when I think about that, it's like, man, what type, what, that was 25 years ago. You guys had to like stop what you were doing to watch a TV show. So they would watch it as a kid when I was a kid. And, uh, 
my sister and I would uh, stay up late and watch it with them, I guess. But it kind of got to a point when we were like, I don't know, five, six, seven, where we'd sit around the table at dinner and we would talk about, you know, talk about your day, like Kramer tells you you're going to do. But then also they talk about, you know, okay, so in this particular episode of Seinfeld, George got into this, you know, XYZ incident. And then you'd go to my mom and then my mom would have to fill in what happened to Kramer that episode. And then it would go to my sister and she would have to talk about, you know, what happened to George. And then they would go to Elaine. So we'd go around the table and try to fill in what what all the other characters were doing during that episode, which I mentioned in the forward a bit. Um, And I think that's still a super fun like road trip game. If you're in the car with other Seinfeld people and you got six hours to kill, like pull up an episode, you know, pull up the doodle. It's like, okay, what happened to George in the doodle? What happened to Jerry in that episode? And you you can try to try to remember it. Yeah. Right. Uh, And then as an adult, you know, it's, it's on six different cable channels every day. So if I'm doing the dishes or if I'm, you know, doing whatever little house chores I got, I always have Seinfeld on in the background, you know, I don't necessarily watching it, not sitting down plugged into it, but it's always on. I'm catching it in the subconscious. Nice. Yeah, that's the same for me. I try and get an episode in whenever I can to watch it. Yeah, it's comforting. It reminds me, I think, of when I'm a kid. And, you know, I can text certain people. You know, my, my, my dad, I'll text him all the time. I'll drop a line out of nowhere on Seinfeld. And, and he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And there's certain, you know, Seinfeld people that know exactly what the line is. And you can drop it. And it's like, I showed it 25 years ago. And we're 30, you know. But, like, those people are kind of plugged in on it. And that's a fun community to be in, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and also, we do have a, um, I'm, I don't know, you've probably seen it or whatever but we do have a, the largest facebook community about seinfeld called seinfeld isms so there's plenty of uh, that kind of stuff on there too so if you haven't seen it yet you might enjoy it oh i'm, I'm in that group and I, ah. and I hope i hope i can post my book link when it's up and ready and i hope we can kind of plug it in there oh yeah that yeah. shouldn't be a problem steve what do you think yeah no that, that's fine uh go for it so we're pretty good at uh you know letting people post their their creative work about seinfeld because you know that's what the group's about is just people sharing the love for the show so yeah go for it that's all right awesome that's right there's 140,000 people in there you know i figured if just one percent of you buy and leave a positive review that's got to help the cause oh absolutely yeah yeah and uh speaking of seinfeldisms every week uh we talk about any experience uh, that we've had involving the show in our real life i've got three this week oh wow which is uh pretty cool yeah, so uh, Ivan and I both work at the same company and uh, through the week I was uh, looking at a, an account for someone and uh, I won't be too personal, obviously, for privacy's sake, but uh, that person's last name was Constanza. So uh, one letter off Constanza, mm. which I thought was pretty cool. Very cool. And uh, the second one is uh, I was driving down the road the other day and I don't think I did, but I may have actually run over a pigeon. <laughs> we have a deal. We have a deal. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they broke the deal. So... I couldn't see any evidence of me running over the pigeon when I looked in the rear view mirror after driving past it. But I also didn't see the pigeon flutter away at the last minute like they normally do. So I'm going to be hopeful and uh, assume that I didn't run over the pigeon. But uh, for a moment there, I thought that they definitely broke the deal. Uh, yeah, they definitely did. It sounds it. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and my third one happened literally half an hour ago while uh, Ivan and I were waiting for Mitch to jump on. Uh, I was reading an article uh, on a website and... Uh, the, the header picture of the article was actually the Super Nazis. So, uh, yeah, last minute Seinfeldism. Nice one. Great. 
Yeah, well, for me, I just have one, but it, it's kind of, you told me about uh, Seinfeld News before we uh, started recording. It's kind of linked to Seinfeld News. I was just like on Google because I get like random news articles, you know, when I refresh. And one of them said that, uh, that I did not know this until like three days ago. There's going to be some Funko Pops coming out from uh, based on Seinfeld. Yeah, big news. It, uh, it, it was uh, it was all over Seinfeldisms. You know, there was probably 30 or 40 posts yeah. Uh, on, yeah. on the group. And uh, yeah, big, big, big news for Seinfeld fans. Yeah, no, it's funny. Like I haven't looked at Seinfeldisms for a few days, but then I, I just jumped back on. And then when I went to Seinfeldisms, I was like, oh yeah, crap, there's like 30. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's so many articles about it. Yeah, that yeah. was massive. Massive. Mitch, you said yeah. you have a Seinfeld. I do. So last week I was, I have a two-year-old daughter and I was at the park with my daughter and we were sitting there playing and there was a mom kind of near us and a bird flew right into her head. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said, that bird just flew right in the back of your head. I've never seen that before. <laughs> and she like just looked at me. <laughs> yeah. And she yeah. just looked at me like I was the worst person ever. Oh my I God. I didn't elaborate. You know, I just let her carry on but yeah we're right into her head oh my god <laughs> just like that's elaine great. awesome <laughs> awesome i would have said that's gotta hurt <laughs> <laughs> well seinfeld news buddy uh so how many uh, you already have at least one article about the funko pops uh, do you have um anything else from seinfeld news steve yeah so three articles this week uh first one like you said is the uh the announcement this week of the forthcoming funko pops uh seinfeld dolls so i'll elaborate a bit uh, on those so on june one they'll be available uh, well they'll begin shipping on june one uh they are available pre-order now um, and we'll put a link to an, the article that I'm reading from uh, as well as a pre-order link in our show notes as well but when they do come out you'll be able to get a Funko Pop of uh, each of the core four characters so obviously Jerry, Elaine, George and Kramer. Um, what I thought was really cool wasn't uh, was that it's not just them in their normal day-to-day uh, costumes but each of the core four has a specific character reference in what they're wearing so Jerry's going to be wearing his puffy shirt, iconic stuff. Uh, George which is it, this is actually a pretty deep cut, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a well-known episode or, or storyline involving George, but he has like a red triangle over his head. And that's, that's a reference to the healer. I can't remember his name, but Tor uh, Ekman. season two is the heart attack. Tor Ekman. Tor Ekman that's yeah. right. So that's a pretty deep cut. I thought for the, the, the George doll, which is pretty cool. Kramer will be in his underwear, which is obviously a reference to pick when he models for Calvin Klein. And uh, Elaine will be wearing the much well-known and much maligned urban sombrero uh, from the foundation when she is the CEO of the J. Peterman catalogue. Uh, there'll also be dolls of Newman, Uncle Leo and Soup Nazi, uh, a bunch of sets as well, main one being uh, Jerry's apartment and uh, a bunch of uh, accessories as well uh, aside from the dolls. So there'll be a backpack with Del Boca Vista on it. There'll be a glass that says, I don't want to be a pirate, which is actually quite fitting for this uh, this podcast and uh, a Summer of George t-shirt. So lots of goodies available. Yeah, just cross out pirate and write secondary character and we can pretend it's ours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, now, the second bit of news is I found out through the week uh, about a band. Um, I am a pretty big music fan. Um, I read a lot of music news websites and uh, try and sort of stay in touch with, uh, you know, what's going on uh, beyond popular music. And uh, I came across a band who are going to release their new album in about a month or so. And that band is called Lowwalker. And uh, that's obviously a reference to, again, I can't remember his name. I'm terrible at names, but you probably do, Ivan. Oh, Aaron. Oh, no, that's, sorry. No, the low talker is, um, no, no, sorry. The low talker is Leslie from The Puffy Shirt. 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. So at first I thought it was just a coincidence, but uh, I read the interview and it is a direct Seinfeld reference. So the band itself uh, is a solo project by a musician from Athens in Georgia. His name's Andrew Shepard. And in the interview, he does admit that it is a direct reference to uh, the low talker being Leslie from the Puppy Show, which again, I thought was pretty cool. Very cool. Um, I thought the band themselves, you know, might've been like Grindfeld, which is the much loved uh, metal Seinfeld band. But uh, beyond the band name, there's no reference to Seinfeld in the lyrics or their music or anything. It's just that name. But uh, yeah, it's still pretty cool. And we'll put a link to their music and whatnot uh, in the interview that I saw in the notes as well. Uh, final bit of news is that Jerry Seinfeld appeared on The Tonight Show through the week and uh, he spoke with Jay Leno and uh, they talked a bit about what was in the background of uh, Jerry's Zoom call. And uh, one thing he mentioned was a medal. And uh, he said that it's the only medal he's ever received. And it was for an article that he wrote uh, at some point filming comedians and cars getting coffee. And uh, he won basically an award for this article. And uh, in that interview, he said that if comedy didn't work out for him or, you know, if he didn't decide to pursue a career in comedy, he would have actually tried to pursue a career in uh, auto journalism. So uh, as we all know, Jerry is a massive car fan, a car aficionado. So, uh, you know, we could have very well gotten a, uh, a Jerry Seinfeld being a, a journalist about cars or even an author like you Mitch. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Uh, I feel like it would have been a, a little bit of a wasted talent. You know, I'm not going to read anything Jerry's writing about cars, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad he found his real passion and, you know, we get to watch him on TV. Yeah, no, it definitely. Um, I mean, we wouldn't have known what we would have missed, but, uh, you know, in, a, <laughs> right, in an alternative right. universe, I think we would have been a lot, I think we've been a lot sadder. Yeah, right, bizarre. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have even had this podcast and you wouldn't have had your uh, book. So who knows, who knows right. what would happen we would have probably done a podcast about jerry's auto articles somehow <laughs> <laughs> talking about his cars <laughs> i don't know if, if we did a podcast about a random auto journalist's love of particular cars i think we might be the two or three most boring people on planet Earth. oh probably yeah it'd definitely be a bizarro world <laughs> that's all the news <laughs> you've got today buddy that is it all right, let's have a really quick break. And when we come back, we are talking about the secondary characters from the 20th episode of season six and our fire or our second last Bitwabask episode ever. We're talking about the secondaries from The Doodle. Hi, this is Zach and Aaron from Seinfeld Law. And uh, you are listening to But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. The Doodle first aired in the US on April 6th, 1995. This one was directed by Andy Ackman and written by Alec Berg and Jeff Schaefer. In this episode, Jerry is upset when he realizes he has fleas in his apartment. He's even more upset when he finds the source. Newman, played by Wayne Knight. He's going to have to have the place fumigated and will have to move out for a couple of days. His parents come to visit, however, but he thinks he has the perfect solution when Elaine gets a job interview with Viking Press. She's told them she's from out of town so she can use their suite at the plaza. Jerry's parents get to spend the weekend there and uh, unfortunately for Elaine, they have too good of a time, as well as Uncle Leo and Nana. Elaine is also desperate to get a manuscript Viking has sent her, but it's in Jerry's sealed apartment. George, meanwhile, is dating someone in Elaine's art class, Paula, played by Krista Miller, and can't help but wonder about the meaning of a doodle she's drawn. So some other secondary characters in the episode. Guy Cena, he plays Mandel. He's from Viking Press. Ellis Williams makes his first appearance on the show as The Exterminator, and he's later known as Carl The Exterminator. That's um George's black friend when he tries to impress Mr. Morgan uh, <laughs> later on in the series. A very awkward, uh, awkward scene. And um, Kobe Turner plays Elaine's uh, lead into Viking Press, Judy the 
one that Elaine was going to go out to lunch with. Uh, and also Dana Wheeler-Nicholson, she plays Shelly. She's Jerry's episode girlfriend. So a bit of trivia about the episode, guys. So uh, we find out how Newman got the fleas in a deleted scene of the episode. Newman acquired the fleas from the bulldog named Beauford, who was um, loaded with them. And that's the same dog that Kramer unleashed on uh, Newman after he eats the last Mackinac peach. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, when I read that, it was kind of satisfying because uh, the dog at the end, you know, and, and Kramer unleashes him and, and uh, both chases down the street. It was a bit of a random kind of scene. You know, obviously dogs hate mailmen. That's a, that's a stereotype. So it made sense in that regard. But the fact that Kramer knew this dog and knew that Beaufort would hate Newman, it, it just, it, it was a bit out of place. It had no continuity or no context. But uh, this deleted scene existing kind of, you know, it, it alleviates that frustration for me, which I think is good. Absolutely. I feel like as well, if this was like, say, like a season eight or nine episode, they would have probably put this this scene in maybe at the start. You know how they put the, like, they got rid of Jerry's stand-up bits in the later seasons and they had like scenes to kind of set off the episode. I think this probably would have been a scene at the start. What do you guys think? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm kind of with Steven there. I've, Buford chases him away, you know, and it always kind of left me wondering like, okay, well, yeah, dogs, hate mailman but like i don't really know what else that means but i, I didn't know about the deleted scenes so that makes a ton of sense that that's where he got the fleas yeah probably because yeah, of indication or timing or something they you know they right did. yeah it's probably my guess yeah it, it was just a bit confusing when i first saw it before i saw this trivia point as well because kramer's obviously ticked off at, at newman for uh teasing him for eating the last peach and not giving any to him and it's just so convenient that both of these right there uh you know and kramer could just unleash him it was it was very uh just yeah confusing so uh, i'm glad i'm glad that this this deleted scene so i can i can now rest easy yeah you can you can sleep peacefully now you don't you won't stay awake all night it'll be fine that's right <laughs> what do you have steve yeah so this is not really official trivia but it's an awesome i guess fan theory and it does make total sense so again a frustrating thing about this episode for me when I first watched it, was that uh, Elaine is obviously desperate to get her uh, manuscript so that she can review it before she goes into an interview. And uh, she goes to the apartment and uh, as she's there, Kramer comes out. He'd been in there for about an hour and a half and he was reading the manuscript in Jerry's apartment and Elaine desperately asks him where it is. And uh, he says, oh, it's on the coffee table or it's in the bathroom. He's, he's not really sure because he's concerned about the poisoning from the toxic fumes. And uh, Elaine goes in there twice, maybe even three or four times and desperately searches, you know, she rips up couch cushions, goes into the bathroom. She's tearing the place apart trying to find this manuscript and she can't find it and as a viewer i thought there's no way that uh kramer could have misplaced a manuscript because it's a you know it's a big chunky piece of paper it's not just a it's not like a set of keys or something small that he could have easily dropped somewhere that's that's hard for her to locate in the dark and running around like a mad woman yeah that's true but yeah this bit of trivia says that it must be in the fridge because when kramer exits he says you know i, I uh, he says to jerry i left a mac and all peach in your fridge and uh you know and then they start talking about the the, the, the toxic fumes and then Kramer gets stressed. Uh, and that's really the only place it could be, logically. So again, it's not official trivia, but it, it's 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 such a logical fan theory that it kind of is official, even though it's not said, you know, according to to the to the episode. So again, another satisfying answer to a question that I thought, where where would that manuscript be? And obviously it's in the fridge. So I thought that was really neat too. And that makes sense for a guy like Kramer as well. I mean, just leaving a manuscript in the fridge, like who else in the <laughs> core four would do it? And also another thing to add as well, Jerry asks Elaine sarcastically if he can get if she can get him a soda if elaine said yeah i'll do that for you she could have just opened the fridge and found the manuscript there too so there was two possibilities or two you know ways she could have got the manuscript so it makes sense that it was in the fridge yeah and uh You've got to wonder if the writers sort of wrote that in there as a implied, you know, answer to the question or, or, you know, answer to the mystery of where is the manuscript or if it just worked out that way and then someone at some point watched it and go, I thought, well, it must be in the fridge then. Yeah. 
I, I think that's that's probably the most logical place because Elaine, like Elaine, wouldn't have thought to open it in the fridge. But then, uh, yeah, like I said, like someone like Kramer, only he'd do something like that. So it makes sense. Yeah, and you know, when you see her tearing the apartment apart, it, it's not anywhere, and uh, you know, it's not a big space. There's not a lot of places that Kramer would have put and put it that wouldn't have been obvious to Elaine, even though, even though she was running around. So yeah, it was it, like like the reason why Beaufort was there at the end. It was very satisfying to learn that well, it must be in the fridge. So two two concerns alleviated for myself, so I can rest double easy tonight. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you have any other trivia? Yeah, I've got a a little tidbit. I think there's a a long history in the show where they use names of real people uh, and they mix them into the show somewhere else. And it's not in this episode, but you know, Alec Berg wrote this episode. Great John Houseman name. And oh, yes. Alec Berg. <laughs> Alec Berg. That's why right. I said Alec Berg when I did the plot synopsis. I usually do. Right. Alec Berg. Uh, so, you know, obviously he's the one who gave the hockey tickets to the group in the famous Putty episode where he's a face painter. So whenever I hear Alec Berg, I never think about anything he wrote. I think about him having the hockey tickets. Um, and then they had to say thank you to him and they didn't, you know, and then Putty becomes a chess painter. So Alec Berg, you know, yeah. I'll remember that guy forever because he always, he had the Devils and Rangers hookup. <laughs> he did. Yeah, he's yeah. He, he's, he's seen a he's mentioned a lot in the uh, in the series. Right, right. Yeah. Every every time I hear his name, I I automatically hear it as uh, Alec Berg. Like Jerry says it. <laughs> yeah, great it's, John Houseman name. It's, like it's great John Houseman. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's this involuntary response. It's like when someone says the word, you know the number sixty nine in my head. I always do the bits of butthead like her. He says sixty nine. It's just I can't I can't not. <laughs> yeah. like that. Nice. Berg. Nice. It's ingrained nice. as a script. Nice. Yeah, it's ingrained in there. <laughs> yeah. I have one more trivia yeah. fact, guys, before... Um, or do you have more trivia as well, Steve? Uh, no. Okay, I've got one really good one. It, it's by... Uh, well, it's based on... Um, it's about Krista Miller. She's the actress who plays Paula. Uh, she also appears in The Sniffing Accountant as Ellen. She's the one who um, George, you know, feels the material after he gets the brass salesman job and then she fires him on the spot <laughs> literally moments after he gets the job. So she plays two different characters on Seinfeld. She auditioned for The Drew Carey Show. Uh, as we all know, she was one of the main cast on that show for the, for the series run. The producers, when she went into audition, they weren't sure if she could do comedy because she was like a straight-edged, you know, TV actress. She sent them a copy of The Doodle as evidence, like the script, and um, her audition was a success and she got the role. Nice. Yeah, nice. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Worked out well for her. Yeah, very well. Sucks that, it kind of sucks that she had to prove herself of being a comedic actress by showing that she could do comedy in something that was already done. I don't know. It just seems a bit unfair that they assumed she couldn't do it uh, and she had to show them. Usually, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just naive about an audition process, but surely the strength of her audition should have been enough. Uh, well, I, I've looked at her back catalogue, you know, in prep for this episode, and she a lot of her earlier work was like serious, like dramas and like stuff. She did a lot of lots of TV work, not many films. Um, so that's probably, maybe she was kind of typecast as like a serious actress. So that's probably, right. probably would have been okay, a big thanks. obstacle for her. It's probably my guess. Yeah, no, fair enough then. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about some secondary characters. Uh, we might as well talk about Paula while we're uh, talking about Krista, huh? Yeah, makes sense. All right. She's played by, like I mentioned just before, Krista Miller. She's appeared in TV shows, of course, including the Drew Carey show in a main role, uh, Scrubs, Cougar Town, and Party of Five. And this, as an actress, is her second appearance on the show. Like I mentioned, she did play the lady from the Sniffing Accountant, the brass sales company manager, who fires George moments after he gets the job from Sid Fargus. So uh, with Paula, I feel like she's been doing art for a while, but she's kind of, I, I feel like she's probably just got into nude drawings because a lot of people, like people I know who 
do art. They might start with like something like oil painting or, or something like that. And then they'll move on to like other things. So they'll learn different things. Um, Cause yeah, cause when you see like her doodle of George, it does look like a, like a caricature, like a very like <laughs> comically absurd caricature. But I feel like she's probably done that as like a rough sketch on, on the, um, on the napkin. And uh, yeah, I feel like she probably just wants to um, explore more facets of art. So she decides to do new drawing. What, what do you two think? Yeah, I think that's a great take because nobody jumps into new drawings, right? Like you're like, I'm going to dabble in art. Like the first class you take is not like new drawing class. The first class you take is like pastels and, you know, watercolors. And yeah. She's like, yeah. She's, so yeah, you're right. She's like several years into her art journey because, you know, sketching nude people is like an intimate experience. You're not just going to jump right into that. You're going to be a real artist before you get to that level. Yeah, for sure. Because especially like the the idea of, you know, looking at a, like a nude male, like man, man or woman, you know, obviously for a first timer, you know, it's a bit, uh, right. it can be daunting <laughs> at times. Not that I've, I've done nude, nude art before, but uh, yeah, I could, yeah, it's definitely one for like a more seasoned artist. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um, the, I'm just trying to think of a situation where maybe someone uh, in their first experience in uh, art might be uh, nude or life drawings and the only thing I can think of is maybe if if it's you know someone just trying to you know maybe they're a bit safe you know they're, they're not a risk taker and someone encourages them like hey come and do this thing that might make you feel a bit uncomfortable to sort of push their boundaries mm-hmm. but I don't think that really applies to Paula because she seems like she's trying to take her art seriously it's not just a one-off uh, experiment for her it's 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 more of a it's a more serious pursuit, um, you know, maybe even a full-time pursuit for her. Maybe she's mm-hmm. a full-time artist or maybe she's trying to transition out of a career, uh, you know, a more button-down office type career into something a bit more uh, artistic and creative. Yeah, so I think you're right in that. She, she's she been doing art. She started at some point in the past and uh, she's made her way up to uh, life drawings because she seems quite comfortable, you know. She's there with Elaine and, you know, she seems like she's in her element. She doesn't seem awkward or or anything like that. And she and she's a very relaxed person as well. You know, she's very easygoing. She's not very superficial. Yeah, she you know, she's she's a her personality suits where she's at in her art career. Yeah, and I think just going by what you just said as well, like she's very comfortable in where she is in life, but also yeah, that kind of transcends into her, you know, carefree attitude towards George and his looks, you know, like George can drape himself in velvet <laughs> like he always wanted to do, like as mentioned in a previous episode and uh, he does it and he walks in, you know, with his velvet tracksuit, uh jumpsuit or whatever it is. In and uh, he sees Jerry in, at Monk's and uh, he's like very happy. And he says, yeah, we just had sex. <laughs> so obviously for Paula, you know, to her looks don't matter. That goes with her uh, carefree personality. Paula is like one of my favorite of the single episode girlfriends, you know. And, and this one's interesting because Jerry's girlfriend seems to suck in this episode. Yeah, I agree. George's, girl, George's girlfriend's awesome, right? Like yeah, she's yeah. doing art. She doesn't care that George is ugly. Uh, she she lets him dress himself in velvet like what more do you want Georgie boy you know like you got the perfect girlfriend here and that goes for USA as well like George is so close to having like the perfect life and you know his his psychology (laughs) and his you know his terrible personality just like undoes it for him so again this is another example like in your essay where George is so close to like the perfect life yeah 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 this is one of many many other failings to to keep it under 3,000 words you know it's impossible it's a whole book on George's many failings right where his life could have gone different like what's wrong with Paula Paula is perfect yeah and, and then you never we never see paula again no no this is the last time we see her she is a right. secondary <laughs> character but I, I agree like we like we'll talk about shelly after after this but yeah i i yeah I, I found paula to be more of a lively character in this episode oh, she, she, had, she, had more she personality. was 
she was charming. She was into different things. She let George be who he was. There's nothing wrong with Paula. Paula's perfect girlfriend for George. <laughs> it's just a shame that, uh, you know, things didn't work out. That's right. Off screen. Yeah. <laughs> I think her perfection is exactly why George made up a reason to break up with her. And we assume that he did because she sucks on a peach seed. And uh, he's obviously disgusted by, you know, George has such low self-esteem and such high amounts of self-loathing that it's the classic self-sabotage of, I'm not good enough for this woman, so I'm going to find a reason to break up with her. Right. All it takes is a seed, which I can understand maybe someone being a bit grossed out by that, but not grossed out to the point where you would give up such a potentially good girlfriend. Even if I was a germaphobe like Jerry, but the person, you know, offending my germaphobic tendencies was Paula, I I think I could make room for that and say, well, you know what? I I don't like the fact that she sucks on peach seeds or pecans, but uh, considering all the good that I'm giving up, I'll uh, I'll try and figure out how to deal with that. But uh, yeah, George, you know, George can't. And I don't think it's even the peach seed. Like I said, I think it's got such self-loathing that when he realizes something's too good for him, he either self-sabotages or gets himself into these situations where it just all falls apart. And I think this is just another case of, of that with George. Yeah, I think so too. It's like, what have I done to deserve this? This is too good to be true. I'm, I'm going to back out. That's basically George's, <laughs> yeah. George's MO throughout the entire series. Right. Yeah. One final note, unless you had other points about Paula, is I think she used to be a bit more maybe superficial. And I think her attitude now where she says, you know, I don't really care about looks. I think maybe that attitude became a bit more relaxed or became a bit more prominent as she explored her art career. You know, I, I think that life drawing, you know, seeing people willing to expose their bodies, you know, which is a pretty hard thing for most people, even, even in private, you know, a lot of people don't like. Uh, getting naked in front of even trusted partners there's, there's always an element of vulnerability and and like it, it's it's just a hard thing to do so to do it in front of strangers i think that would have changed her attitude on on looks and, and more superficial things and then that you know that's a permanent change that's now benefited someone like george who's maybe uh, a bit less conventionally attractive than other people yeah i agree with that so that's all i had about paula mitch do you have any other final takes on paula oh it's just a shame there wasn't more of paula paula was lovely george screwed it up as he does with most good things in his life <laughs> she should have come back yeah. as like a recurring episode girlfriend for maybe a few more episodes before yeah Susan yeah there's back. a there's a few of those in the run you know yeah she's the complete opposite of susan susan sucked yeah fair enough oh well <laughs> that's the way that they wrote it <laughs> but, yeah, right. would have been nice to see uh, would have been nice to see paula probably for like another one or two episodes well, kind of like yeah, kind of like rachel goldstein for jerry you know just like right. not 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 for an entire season but maybe like another two or three eps absolutely yeah, for sure. Anyway, let's talk about, uh, well, for you and me, Mitch, the lesser of the episode girlfriends in this episode. Don't know about Stephen yet, but uh, Shelley, she's played by Dana Wheeler-Nicholson. She's appeared mm-hmm. in Fletch and Tombstone, a couple of uh, famous films from the 80s and 90s. I feel like with Shelley, like, again, much like Paula, she's very comfortable in her own skin. I feel like she's probably seen Jerry for a couple of weeks, and she's probably gotten, like, really comfortable around him very quickly. Like, she's comfortable enough just to suck on pecans and put him jack in... Um, back in Jerry's plate. And I also I I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that she's probably the antithesis of Jerry. Like cuz Jerry as as we all know is like a germaphobe. Like he won't even share the same toothbrush as someone that he's, you know, tongue kissing, <laughs> you know, in the in right. you know during during that period in the series. Like obviously you you're doing all that stuff but you won't, you know, share a toothbrush like that's. Like he's just his mindset is just so bent regarding that kind of stuff. And you know, he, he everything's got to be clean and orderly and stuff. And I'm not saying that Shelley's like 
like a sloth, you know, who just leaves stuff lying around and stuff. But I feel like she's more comfortable like sharing things with her partner, you know, hygiene. While hygiene is important, I feel like the little things like that, like she'll share like a, like a milkshake with Jerry and, you know, give him like the same straw and stuff. I feel like she's really comfortable with all that kind of stuff. And she's almost like the opposite of Jerry. And that's how they clash. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Shelly for me is just like, yeah, Jerry was grossed out because he accidentally ate your sucked pecans. Like, yeah, well, that's gross. Like, you know, standard operating procedure for normal people is like, yeah, we don't eat shared food. Right. Uh, we don't, we don't really need to share toothbrushes. Like, <laughs> especially think, in these times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah now, now it's very like, yeah, no, I can't do that. Like, like, I don't think Jerry's really out of line there. You know, I think, uh, is he a germaphobe? Like, do we see that throughout the series? Yeah, maybe. But mm. in, in these particular instances, like, I don't know. I don't think it's that big of a deal to be disgusted by eating somebody's sucked on pecans that you didn't know that they were sucking on. Like, that's kind of gross. We don't Actually, yeah, no, the, the pecans are a bit, are, are very yuck. I'll admit that. But no, but, you know, sharing, sharing a toothbrush, like if you don't have one, obviously that's not something that I do, but. The fact that she's just so offended by Jerry being grossed out by those things. It's like, okay, maybe it's okay if, you, if you're not necessarily grossed out by these things, but like yeah. you need to recognize like, this is kind of a gross thing. Like I'm okay with it, but I get why, why you might. I think it's gross. Yeah. But she's just like, she's just like so offended by Jerry thinking she's disgusting. It's like, no, he'll still kiss you. It's just like, we shouldn't be sharing pecans. We shouldn't be sharing yeah. toothbrushes. That's gross. Yeah. She was kind of like a bit of a poorly written character in this one. I mean, yeah, like, yeah I get what you mean. It's like, what? Um, yeah. They, they probably, they probably could have done a bit better because it just makes her kind of look like she's a bit of a slob in a way. That's right. Actually, like she just has no regard for hygiene or, you know, person like hygiene with your partner and stuff. Yeah. I wasn't a fan of Shelly. Yeah, no, no, I didn't. I didn't like her much either. Steve, I haven't heard from you yet about Shelley. What What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think I'm kind of in the middle. I think everyone's uh, limitations when it comes to hygiene and sharing things is different. You know, I've been with various partners in my life and some of them have been a lot more comfortable about you know sharing a toothbrush or something similar and some of them have been less so and i think i think shelly doesn't do a very good job of respecting the fact that you know she might be easy going about sharing food or a toothbrush and jerry is not and i think both of those are okay like it's not like you know if shelly is comfortable sharing a toothbrush that's not a grievous uh unhygienic offense it's not the worst thing but if and if jerry's not comfortable with that that's okay too i just mm-hmm. think shelly right. isn't very good at being you know just accommodating of the fact that jerry is not comfortable with that she's just not accepting of his different standards that she has one thing that i will take on shelly's side is i do understand why she gets upset in the restaurant because i think jerry does overreact when he finds out that she was sucking on the pecans you know he spits it out and he kind of raises his voice a bit and he makes a bit of a scene and he kind of he kind of embarrasses her in front of george and um and paula so I can understand why Shelly is a bit taken aback by Jerry's reaction because I think I would be a bit embarrassed if someone, you know, if, if Jerry just said to me, if I was Shelly and Jerry just said to me privately or quietly, look, uh, expressed his his um, his disgust or, you know, the fact that he's a bit upset, I, I think that would have been a bit more mature and a bit more helpful. But the fact that he spits out a nut and raises his voice a bit, I can understand why Shelly's taken aback back a bit. Um, so I, I am sort of on her side in that particular scene yeah i understand yeah i mean i think just spitting food in a restaurant you know in front of people and and raising the voice a bit i think that's just a bit um you know just a bit too much in that particular context yeah i guess you can you can have some sympathy for her in that regard yeah and i mean she doesn't you know i think she handles it pretty well you know she 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 sort of pulls jerry up and says you know so do you think that i'm uh you know i'm I'm, i can't remember what she says but it's something about uh, you know she's bothered by jerry finding her so repulsive and then she goes to the bathroom and they 
they, they leave the restaurant. So she doesn't escalate the scene. But, uh, yeah, I'm just saying that I can understand why she's initially taken back a bit and a bit upset by, by Jerry's reaction to the situation. Yeah, and then, like, she does the test, you know, in the bathroom with the toothbrush and Jerry tries to, you know, gingerly puts the toothbrush, you know, closer and closer to his mouth but doesn't quite reach contact. What was Shelley's intention there, do you think? Oh, I don't think she set up the toothbrush as a test. I think I think it was just, yeah, you can use my toothbrush. And it was just a, it was just an extra, you know, at first she was bothered by the fact that Jerry thinks that sharing nuts with her is gross and now sharing toothbrushes. It was just an extra layer of her saying, you know what, I don't want to tolerate this. Uh, see you later. I don't think it was set up as a test. Oh, because that, that's the way I saw it because Jerry, you know, in that moment, Jerry was like, oh, I didn't bring my toothbrush and maybe Shelly was like, oh, maybe you can use mine and, and see how you go. But uh, no, that, that, I guess that kind of makes sense. It was just like an in the moment kind of thing. And then <laughs> Jerry wouldn't use it and uh, Shelly is is disgusted by Jerry. Yeah, he, he uh, kicks her out. Oh, sorry, she kicks him out. She, she kicks him out. Yeah, that's it. And then once again, just like Paul, or we never see Shelley again. No, but good riddance to Shelley, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah, probably not a really good one off secondary in this one. No, we don't. We don't need more Shelley content. Nah, we're good. No, we there's, good. I mean, there's not a lot. <laughs> yeah, not a lot. I mean, props to Dana, the actress, but yeah, the Shelley, the character was. I, I, yeah, I'm, I, sure, I'm sure she's a lovely person in real life, but Shelley, the character, not for me. Yeah, not for me either. <laughs> I guess we're not, done talking about Shelley. Like nah, not really. Yeah, yeah, we as, yeah. As George says, there's a lot of nuts out there. <laughs> I love that line. I cacked up laughing when I heard that. It's so good. It was nice because uh, uh, Jerry's usually the one that takes little uh, sarcastic digs at mostly George, but the other uh, Kramer and uh, Elaine as well. Mm. Uh, so it's always it's always kind of satisfying when George is able to get a little dig back at back at uh, Jerry as well. Yeah, George can have his one-liners. You know, he can have his moments. Yeah, I mean Jerry Jerry's the pot shot master, but uh, you know it's always satisfying when when the tables are turned a tiny bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised Jerry didn't come up with that line about the nuts out there. I thought, yeah, it definitely would have been something he would have said. I think he was just too bothered by the fact that he sucked on, uh, already sucked on pecans. <laughs> he was traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, let's jump on to the uh, next secondary character, Mandel. Uh, he is the uh, the guy with the manuscript for the Viking from Viking Press, who Elaine tries to get a job for. Uh, he's played by American-British actor Guy Sinner. Uh, he's most famous for portraying Lieutenant Hubert Gruber in the British comedy series, Allo, Allo. So uh, to our British listeners, you, he's probably very familiar to you. With Mandel, I, I think he's the author of the manuscript. Is that right? No, I think he, uh, wor- he works at, He's like the head of Viking Press. You're right, the head. Right? Yeah, gonna, sure. Yep. He's going to hire Elaine to work at Viking Press. He's interviewing her. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even though Elaine didn't read the manuscript for due to the uh, extermination, and Kramer gives his take about Billy Mumphrey and his downfall and uh, all that kind of stuff, <laughs> he, uh, at first when Elaine is is recounting, well, this is Kramer's thoughts, but she's, you know, doing it, you know, like saying it vicariously, you know, through her, uh, as if it's her, you know, thoughts on the book. At first, he's kind of, I think, like you see his reaction at first, he's seems like very like shocked and like a bit like weirded out by what Elaine said but I think as Elaine goes on he kind of catches on and he's almost like hypnotized by what what she says so uh yeah no he um he he kind of uh he has like a different take on the manuscript yeah well I I think it speaks both to the brilliance of Elaine and to what I think probably all of us have encountered in the adult workforce that Elaine didn't read the book clearly. And how many times as we were going through school did we not read a book and then just try to put together our paper on the fly, right? You can you can get a few notes from your friends and try to put something together. It's not great. 
but mm. but you got something out there. But you know, this guy who's a very important person, obviously, at a very big publishing company, uh, is fooled by Elaine, right? Yeah. One, because because Elaine's tremendous in in many aspects, and then she can spin this Billy Mumphrey story she got from Kramer and sell it. Uh, but also, you know, like. This guy's got a great title. I'm sure he's done some good work before, but ultimately he's just a guy, just like anybody else. He can be tricked. He can be duped. He can be, you know, maybe not fully aware of what was also in this manuscript. Maybe he didn't read it himself. You know, I, I think he's a little bit of a, of a, maybe a fraud, like a lot of people in very high power positions are, you know, they, uh, they so put a lot of work right into it. He faked yeah, it right he into faked- yeah. Just like a lot of people up there, you know, like right. he's probably good, but is he better than Elaine? No, I don't think so. I think he's yeah. probably at the same intellectual level as Elaine and Elaine's tricking him here. Yeah. Yeah. So he got the job possibly through contacts or, you know, faking it till he makes it. Yeah. He, I'm sure at some point in his career in publishing, he didn't read a manuscript either. And then he just said some <laughs> bullshit line about Billy, Mumf- Billy Mumphrey and, you know, somebody bought it and now he's got his job. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's like, yeah, you know, and I think the running joke would be like, no one reads the manuscript. And of course, nobody Kramer's reads the, that. No, no one reads that. And then Kramer's <laughs> the only one who spent an hour and a half reading it. <laughs> probably such fluff, such waffle, you know, right. that, such a dumb story that no one cares for it. That, right. That's awesome. Yeah, he's, he's like a fake. Yeah, he just he yeah. Yeah, got the job because of, of contact. <laughs> that's a great theory. That that works. That checks out. Yeah, no, I uh, I agree. You know, he got the fool got fooled by a better fool. That's exactly what happened. And, you know, Elaine's downfall, it wasn't, you know, the fact that she couldn't, uh, you know, comprehend the manuscript and, and give like a proper thoughts. It was the fact that, you know, the hotel bill got blown out by uh, Morty and Helen Seinfeld as well as Nana and uh, Uncle Leo and uh, Uncle Leo gets an Asian or tries to get an Asian escort in the final scene I thought it was, was going to be uh, I told him I was looking for an Asian woman they told me it was going to be an Asian woman so you know <laughs> they've blown out the, the Viking Press's uh, account. So that's the thing. Right. And obviously, you know, you don't have to be like an intellectual to figure out that, you know, that someone's, you know, taken advantage of the tab. But uh, yeah, that's basically Elaine's downfall right there. Yeah, I, I think it's the very uh, liberal use of the hotel benefits. But it's probably also the fact that she, you know, in that process, Mandel and, and Viking Publishing would have found out that Elaine probably lied about being an out-of-towner. So there was the dishonesty out of, uh, aspect as well. Oh, that as well. I mean, wouldn't they have known like her address? Because I, I think with, with job applications, don't you have to give your address, don't you? No, she says that she used uh, Morty and Helen's address. That's oh, why Morty and Jerry Helen's, right, right. Script. Yes, yes, yeah, of course. Right, right, right. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so she, in a way, she kind of like, you know, faked her way to almost make it but not quite. Right. You know, in in the last essay in my book, it's called The Gang of New York. And I talk about basically how this, the core four, finds a way to just destroy everybody that comes in their path, you know? Uh, and it's through little things and it's through big things and it's through them, you know, not really trying or them being malicious, but regardless, like they're taking somebody down, you know, so Elaine has this friend go out of their way for her to, to get this, this great job offer at Viking Press. And all she has to do is just like read the manuscript and then go to the interview. But what does she do? She wants to say two nights at the plaza because she's super selfish. So she lies about her address so she can stay there. And then, you know, insanity ensues. And, you know, the, the old people go in and wreck the place, which you know is going to happen. Yeah. But, you know, it's just like dude, whoever comes in contact with this group of people, you know, Judy at Viking Press, like her reputation is now ruined because mm-hmm. she's brought Elaine in. Yep. Elaine had to lie and stay at the plaza. 
And that's the ironic thing too, because, you know, the Morty and Helen, like using Morty and Helen's address to try and get the job, those same people actually ruin the opportunity. <laughs> for Elaine. So that's, that, that's the irony in all this. That is great. Yeah. 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 It's like causing me. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy how that all worked out. I mean, you know, we're talking about how Elaine's selfishness uh, is ruining her friend Judy's reputation because Judy recommended her. And, you know, Mandel's probably a bit embarrassed as well because he considered an interview and, uh, you know, was obviously impressed by the fact that she's a liar uh, and a, a bit of a user as well. But the true Machiavellian puppet master behind the scenes is Newman. It all started with Newman. You know, he got, uh, he got fleas. He gave them to Jerry that forced the need for Morty and Helen to stay in the plaza. Elaine couldn't stay there. They took advantage of the, the, the free benefits. And, you know, so Newman, Newman is the true, he's such a Machiavellian sort of puppet master. He unintentionally caused this massive snowball effect that affected Elaine and Mandel and uh, Morty and Helen and Jerry. He, he's so maniacal that he can do it even unintentionally. That's so, mm-hmm. yeah, true skills there by Newman. For sure. And I, that's why I think, like I said, if this was like a later season episode and they put that Newman clip with him and, and Beaufort and him getting the fleas and then it started like a chain reaction for everything, I think it would have been an even greater episode. You know, it's just like everything like started off, it's kind of like the butterfly effect or in this case, the flea effect. <laughs> so, you know, and then, and then all this stuff happens and everyone's, you know, lives kind of get compromised. Yeah, definitely. So going from Mandel, uh, I guess we can talk about uh, Morty and Helen Seinfeld because, I mean, we've talked about them in their own special episode way back when, but I feel like it's a bit different when they go to the plaza and like usually, you know, because Morty is such a tight ass when it comes to money, you know, he's very, you know, he doesn't like spending too much money. But the Mm -hmm. fact like when they go somewhere and they can get everything they want, they take full advantage of it. Right. I think Morty and Helen are great. And I mentioned this a little bit in my essays about the secondary characters. They're every parents, right? Like, so when I was watching this as a kid, you know, my parents were in their thirties and, you know, the Seinfelds were, you know, in their sixties. Well, now all of a sudden I'm in my thirties <laughs> and I'm Jerry's age and my parents are the Seinfelds age. And it's like, yeah, I, how many times do I have to help my mom get into her email? You know, how many times does my mom tell my dad he can't have a Chippehoy before dinner to uh-huh. ruin his appetite? You yeah, know, nice. <laughs> it's, it's just like, and they're wonderful people. And if I sell a million copies of this book, I'll buy my dad a Cadillac. You know, like, <laughs> like I, like I get it, but it's just like, man, you guys, yeah, it's exactly what my parents would do if they went to the plaza. Like, yeah. they would eat all the macadamia nuts. They would order, they would order massages, you know, like, like what, what is the deal with when parents get to be that age? They're just like, you, we can't bring you back into society. What's going on here? You guys don't know how to act in a hotel without racking up thousands of dollars of bills. Yeah. They're like a couple of rungs away from like a, a rock band going in the hotel and trashing the whole place. You know, they're like, that's, they're not too far off. That's right. That's exactly right. If it was a rock band, if it was like Motley Crue or something, I think there would be Coke all over the tables as opposed to macadamia <laughs> dust. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. There'd be a bit, something a bit more harder than that. I think so, yeah. And, uh, you know, instead of jars of macadamia nuts strewn all over the floor, there'd be bottles of uh, Jack Daniels or something like that. But, uh, yeah. you know, same difference, mm-hmm. same same, same level, same level of uh, disrespect. One thing that I thought was interesting was that, you know, Helen at first, she doesn't even want to stay in the hotel room. And uh, it, you said, you Mitch saying that your parents and how they are now and your relationship with them now as, a, as, a, as an adult uh, reminds you of Jerry and, you know, him just trying to deal with his parents and how they're embarrassing and, you know, he's always, sort of frustrated by them you know i have the same dynamic with with my mother and father as well um you know love them they're great they've done everything for me and you know they're, they're the reason why i'm a massive seinfeld fan but uh you know there is that common dynamic of like oh come on you know you roll your eyes and you get a bit frustrated and whatnot and helen in this episode reminds me exactly of my mum, where if something's too good she can't 
you know, she just goes, <laughs> no, I don't, yeah. I don't deserve this sort of thing. It's that, it's that weird, like, mum guilt. Yeah. It, I, think it's like the, I think it's like a European guilt because my mother, my grandfather and uh, grandmother were from post-war Europe and they came over here and some of that sort of, like, the stoic guilt was passed down via my mum or through my mum and uh, I can sense that in Helen where it's just like no this is too good I don't deserve this this has got to be a catch I can't just let something nice happen (laughs) what I found interesting was that Helen you know at first didn't even want to stay there but then she very very quickly succumbs to the luxury you know it's it's not like a persistent thing throughout you know as the scenes cut back to the hotel you know she very much buys in very quickly so I think you know once she once she once she lets that that guilt go she very much enjoys the 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 perks of staying in a, in a beautiful hotel for free and 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 then takes advantage of it you know she goes the opposite end of the of, of the spectrum right even nana becomes rebellious she throws her champagne flute you know <laughs> over her shoulder and it lands on the ground and she goes oh the chambermaid can clean that up it's also such yeah. a great like old person term to call it a chambermaid, <laughs> chambermaid. <laughs> <laughs> what year is this 1800 Right. Yeah. Very old. And even Uncle Leo has, uh, you know, his desires in the in the final scene. You know, he's uh, he's taken full advantage of the situation, or at least tries to. (laughs) And you know, when Mr. Mandel he's reading off the charges to Elaine, he talks about you know the macadamia nuts and the damage to the room, but he also mentions like several adult films that were purchased. Mm. Uncle like, Leo. Mort- Uncle Leo, 100%. Morty 100%. and Helen aren't buying uh, porn on the hotel, but that's absolutely Uncle Leo. Yeah, he's a, he's a pervert. Yeah. He's a deviant. <laughs> that's Sexual right. deviant, you know? <laughs> he's got fire in the belly, so to speak. That's right. <laughs> he, does. he does. What's surprising to me as well is I can't remember any, like in any episodes prior to this one where Uncle Leo has uh, interacts with Elaine, but I'm sure, you know, if this were real life, Uncle Leo would know who Elaine is because his <laughs> nephew... Uh, is her best friend. You know, they would have they would have known each other at some point. But the fact that when she walks into the hotel room, his first reaction isn't, "Oh my God, it's Elaine." It's, "You're not Asian." <laughs> yeah. You know, he's not Perfect he's not surprised by saying someone he knows. It's just that she's the wrong ethnicity. You know, which is which again is. <laughs> There's a lot about who he is, who what he his is. priorities are, especially in that moment. For sure, because Uncle Leo first meets Elaine in the pen back in season three in her, you know, very like, she takes those drugs, you know, for her back and uh, she goes, oh, yeah. yeah. But that's obviously a very brief meeting. And I don't, I think prior to then or like since like, Prior to the doodle, they don't see each other again. So it kind of makes sense that Uncle Leo doesn't know who she is. You know, she hasn't hasn't seen her for like you know, two even, years. But even between the pen and this episode, you know, they off off screen again, assuming it's real, they would have met at some point. You know, the fact that Uncle Leo, I'm sure he does recognize her when he when he sees her walk in. Mm. But his his reaction isn't the fact that it's someone he knows no. and uh, that his nephew knows very well. It's the fact that she's not uh, the expected ethnicity of the, uh, the sex worker. That he has. <laughs> oh my god, Leo! Leo is a red, red, hot blooded guy. Well, he was he was oh, convicted a- for a crime of passion. So you know, that's right. We, we have hypothesized with Leo ages ago that he's a very uh, passionate, you know, man that can become very, uh, you know, very emotional and possibly violent. <laughs> so oh yeah, yeah Leo Leo's got lots lots of uh, hot blood running through his veins. <laughs> One especially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, the, yeah. It's just interesting how like the the older, you know, the Seinfeld uh, clan, you know, they're usually like very buttoned up and you know very traditional and easy with money. But when they get something for free, they just they they just have like such a hedonistic lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. You know, they just go all out. They just bling. They love it. Yeah. Lean into it for sure. They do. They yeah, do. I was especially blown away by Nana. The fact that she got drunk, but she is so, you know, she's afraid to leave her apartment. She hasn't left her apartment in 25 years. 
Uh, but the fact that she's having to come to a strange hotel room and get wasted and then, uh, you mm -hmm. know, just throw stuff around, it's, uh, it's kind of good to see them let go, you know, because they are, like you said, quite buttoned down people. Uh, it's good to see them uh, let their hair down a bit, even though yeah. they let their hair down a bit too much. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's nice. It's it's nice for people who are a bit more uptight to you know, relax and just let it out a bit uh, every so often. Yeah, even little Nana who got lost in the pledge drive, you know, uh, probably like what <laughs> ten episodes prior, maybe more. So half yeah. the show, she's on a fixed income. <laughs> she's on a fixed half the show. <laughs> maybe that experience of her going to the bank maybe it helped her overcome her fear a bit. So uh, you know, assuming Helen and Morty called her up and said, "Oh, hey, you know, Nana, we've got this great hotel room and." All this free stuff come and come and take advantage of it you know if it was before the pledge drive she probably would have thought no no i'm not going to leave my apartment but now she's got a bit more confident she's like yeah cool she goes down there and uh you know gets right stuck right into it yeah probably or maybe like she she was so buttoned up and uptight like maybe she hasn't changed since the pledge drive and then she got there and she saw everyone else having a good time and then she's like you know what i'm gonna join them yeah <laughs> way, gone either way time. yeah she had a good time anyway you know throwing her champagne flute i love when she just throws it over her shoulder and it breaks behind her brilliant yeah. having a great time oh, such no. a rock star <laughs> she is are there any other secondaries you guys want to touch on or uh or that, that's it uh that's it for me yeah yep, uh, for me well let's have one more break and uh, when we come back we're going to find out where today's one-off secondary characters if they do uh, feature in our top 20 secondary characters of all time and we'll find out where this episode sits in our list of episodes we have done so far and there's not many left this is the second last episode of big move ask oh drop my nap <laughs> What? She had those nuts in her mouth. She just spit them out. Oh! <laughs> you, you ate these? You, you sucked on these and then put them on the plate? Well, I didn't know you were going to eat them. Still! I'm sorry you find me so repulsive. Now, Stephen, out of 168 episodes we have done, that is including, you know, double episodes being one and uh, everything like that. Where does the doodle, our second last ever episode, sit for you? Uh, this one says at number 26. Oh, pretty uh, high I, up. Wow. Yeah, I really like this episode. Like I said, at the top of uh, our podcast, I haven't seen this episode in I can't remember how long. And I didn't find any any weak parts about this episode. I thought it was okay. all great. Um, the way it all tied in, the fact that Newman having fleas kind of set off this chain reaction of events. And, uh, you know, it brought down Elaine and her plot. I just thought it was one of those brilliantly written episodes where everything kind of ties in together without being too forced or it wasn't too crowbar. It was very, very, you know, the intricacies worked really, really well. Fair enough. Well, for me, it's a number 104. So, uh, you know, pretty, uh, you know, a good episode. Um, yeah, I feel like I, I liked Paula as a secondary character. I didn't enjoy Shelley much like much like you, Mitch. And uh, yeah, I mean, things worked. It kind of uh, almost felt like a, like a classic uh, Seinfeld episode. Like I thought maybe Larry David wrote the episode before I read the notes, but no, it was uh, it was Alec Berg and Jeff Schaefer. So yeah, it was a, it was a decent job. And uh, yeah, an episode which I haven't seen probably for several years like there's some episodes that i've seen like you know five times in a year but others i haven't seen for for many years so this was definitely an older one but uh, it was a nice one to uh, like a lot of lines from you know that we've talked about on seinfeld and lots of incidents you know they come from this episode so uh yeah no it was it was enjoyable enough for me what about you mitch what do you think sure. of the episode yeah well i don't have it ranked out like you guys but um, i do no. love I, I i do love this episode um and I kind of, my favorite part about it is just the dynamic that George has the best girlfriend, Jerry has the worst girlfriend, which usually isn't how it works. You know, usually Jerry has the showstopper and then George has somebody else. 
But at the end of the day, they get to the same point where they break up with this person for some dumb reason. No, for sure, for sure. So would you rate it like? Would you rate it like a classic episode or very good or like? Where I, would you, I wouldn't where put, would you put it. I wouldn't put it in the classic episodes. No. You know, I think it's right in the middle of the pack. Definitely nothing oh. wrong with it, but yep. it's right in the middle of the pack for me. Ah, oh, very good, very good. And uh, Newman, yeah, he uh, like you said, Steve, he's the Machiavellian uh, unintentional puppet master for the events of the episode. Yeah, he's the butterfly that causes the typhoon. <laughs> A pretty big butterfly, if you ask me. <laughs> it all comes back to bite him, literally, right in the end. <laughs> anyway, that was our second last ever episode of But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. Thank you so much for listening to us. It's always wonderful to hear from you via email or social media. You can email us if you haven't. Podcast at gmail.com. We are on social media at B-I-D-W-B-A-S-C. We also have the largest Seinfeld community on Facebook, Seinfeldism, so check that one out. And Stephen, you can support the podcast financially as well. That's right. We do have a PayPal if you want to support us uh, with one-off donations. And if you want to contribute something more regularly, we also have a Patreon. Uh, you can head to patreon.com forward slash B-I-D-W-B-A-S-C. And for as little as two bucks a month, you do get access. Uh, well, it doesn't really apply anymore because this is our second last episode. <laughs> no. uh, but you do get access to a back catalogue of interviews and movie reviews and a whole bunch of things we've done in the past few years. Uh, and you will sort of be supporting us um, for our future projects. So uh, next week and over the next few weeks as well, we will be announcing uh, what, we, what we intend to do after the podcast ends uh, next week. Um, so you will be contributing to uh, future endeavours we have uh, in the pipeline that's right and you'll be getting this episode a little bit earlier than usual usually we drop it every wednesday australian time but uh we're dropping the we would have already dropped the serenity now um but you'll be getting this episode about three or four days later in time for our uh finale which we are talking about the dinner party season five's the dinner party we are doing that for our final episode and uh, everyone is going to listen to that at the same time on wednesday march 31st australian time so everyone patron or non-patron will uh, listen to it early so we'll drop this episode a little bit earlier just for you nice and uh, mitch do you have anything you want to plug as well yeah um my book will be coming out towards the end of march here so hopefully by the time you listen to this uh podcast you can find the book it'll be available on amazon both a digital copy or you can print on demand and or you can also buy it from the straight from the independent publisher it's lawnnumpublishing.com just a little small indie bookstore in phoenix arizona which is kind of fun if you want to support local um, and i have the cover art done by a local artist named michael walchuk he's got a lot of cool art he works for stat news uh, does a lot of basketball drawings so if you're into basketball uh, follow him on twitter or, or instagram he's got some pretty good content there uh, and his links in his bio if you if you're into that basketball of all type art um, you can go check him out and he does some some other stuff as well awesome well mitch thank awesome. you so much for joining us all the way from phoenix we uh, would love to having you on thank you and next week we have a familiar co-host who you've heard from before who's going to be joining us for our bidwa basque finale and uh yeah we'll all three of us will uh bring this one home that's right uh we have max on uh max used to go by the name of stacy uh, we'll let max uh talk about that and why their name changed uh but uh yeah our, our one of our good friends uh, in our personal life and uh, a very regular co-host on the show and it feels fitting to to have max on for our final episode absolutely but anyway my name is ivan i'm steven and i'm Matt. and uh, steven and i we will see you next week for our final ever episode of the podcast you take care of yourselves and each other